The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to open your Bibles now, if you would, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and the title of today's message and for the next several weeks and even next few months, is The Great and Terrible Day of the Lord. The title refers to the Old Testament prophecy of Joel, who wrote in Joel chapter 2, verse number 31, The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. Great and terrible. Those are the adjectives that described the day of the Lord. It's great because there is no time like it before it, and it's terrible because it is the day of God's judgment. It's the day of his intense wrath upon the wickedness of the world. Now, the Bible teaches that each of us will give an account to God. Some will receive everlasting life. Others will be brought to shame and everlasting contempt. God promised that he will punish sin and that he will judge the world in perfect righteousness. And so a day of reckoning is coming, and this is when God will settle all accounts according to his justice, and as we see, it is a great and terrible day. Now, while you and I as believers are looking forward to the glorious uptaking, our glorious uptaking at the return of Christ, the day of the Lord is a day of wrath. For believers, it won't be a, a dreadful day because we're not going to see it from, from this side. It's not a dreadful day for us because we won't see it from the perspective of the world that must live through it. But we will see it as a day of justice. We will see it as a day of vengeance of God upon his enemies and upon our enemies. Now in chapter 1, verse number 10 of this little letter that Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica... There he said that Christ will deliver us from the wrath to come. And in the ninth verse of this chapter, chapter 5, we read there that it says that God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. And what he's speaking of there is our final salvation, that is, the peace and safety that we have in the presence of God. Now, in the preceding chapter, in chapter 4, that we've studied for the past few weeks, there is the rapture of God's people. It's that catching away that happens before the terrible day of the Lord begins. And so it is the deliverance of present believers from the wrath to come. But we notice in our text today, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, how Paul changes his wording from what he says in chapter 4. And now, beginning in chapter 5, he's talking to a different group of people that will experience the wrath of God. He says, But of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Now, in our discussion of the rapture in chapter 4, Paul wrote in verse number 14, If we believe Jesus died and rose again, 
And then in verse number 15, we which are alive and remain, in verse 17, we shall be caught up together, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And then when we transition into chapter 5, you see how the pronouns change. Because in chapter 5, verse number 3, it says, For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them. And so when he speaks of the rapture, he speaks of we, that is those who are believers in Jesus Christ, and he speaks of them, those who are not believers, in the terrible day of the Lord. So indication is that we are not going to experience the same as them. We are believers, or at least I hope that you are. They're the unbelievers. We are saved from the wrath to come, but they will experience the full fury of God's wrath. And should they think that they will escape because they might die before Christ comes, then we need to be sure to note the word says that there is going to be a resurrection of the dead to everlasting contempt. Now the great and terrible day of the Lord is coming and you as Christians will be taken out of this world before that happens. Either we die in the Lord Before he comes, as we read in chapter 4, as it describes, or we will be alive when he comes. But either way, we'll see the day of the Lord from the other side, not from this side, where God's wrath will never touch us. So this is our salvation. It's what salvation is for. Salvation is that we might avoid God's wrath. Now in chapter 4, Paul taught how the return of Christ should shape our thoughts about death. Remember, we discussed this, that Christians shouldn't fear death. Death is only sleeping for the Christian. We are going to rise in the resurrection. Even our spirits, when we die, the soul is, is immediately in the presence of God. So there's no reason for us to fear God so or fear death. So Paul is talking there about we don't need, there's no reason to fear death. So there, he's, he's speaking of thoughts about death. Now he changes that, and we think about how should we live according to this knowledge that we have. What are we to do with our lives? No longer thinking about death and being afraid of that, but what is a Christian supposed to do with his life now that we have this information that there is a terrible day to come? Paul answers that in verse number 4 of this chapter all the way down to the end. Now, by way of introduction... I want to discuss for just a moment the reason that we need to know about Christ's return. Now, this part of Christ's return, the part of judgment on the world, is a prevalent theme in Old Testament Scripture. And it was so frequent, such a frequent theme, that Paul says here in this fifth chapter that there is no need for him to say more about it. In chapter 4, verse 13, he said, I don't want you to be ignorant. He said, you need to know this. Well, why do they need to know it? Well, what is there here that they need to know? Why is this important? And why is it important for believers to know today about the return of Christ? Well, I would say, first of all, we need to know it because it's in the Bible. You need to know the Bible. The return of Christ is spoken of so frequently. So frequently is it found in Scripture that to be ignorant of his return is to be ignorant of the Bible. There's no subject but faith that is as prominent in the Holy Scriptures than the return of Christ and this day of God's judgment upon the world. And so to ignore what the Bible has to say about judgment and about Christ's return is to cut out significant portions of Scripture. 
And so to know the Bible, you must know this. Then secondly, you need to know it and understand it because this is knowledge that will bless you. And Revelation 1 verse 3, the Apostle John began his recording of the Apocalypse with these words, Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. Did you know that Revelation is the only book of the Bible that begins this way? There is no other book in the Bible that starts, Blessed is he that readeth this book. Now, I'm sure that if you read the book of Genesis, you will be blessed. And I know that Christians for centuries have been blessed by reading those precious psalms in the middle of your Bible. You'll be blessed if you read the gospel accounts of Jesus' life. And I know that you'll be blessed if you read these letters that that were written by Paul and Peter and Jude and, and John to the church. You will be blessed if you read those. But none of them begin specifically this way. You will be blessed if you read this. And Christians throughout history have learned there is really a blessing that comes by studying the return of Christ. There's a reason the Bible calls it the blessed hope. And that's because in tough times, in times of persecution, in times of despair, this is that blessed hope that we look forward to. Christ is coming again. He's coming to take us. But sadly, there is so much interest and people want to hear about it so badly that they'll listen to just about anything. And so there are many Christians who have been deceived by false teachers. There are prophecy conferences that have become wildly popular. Books and movies about end times are often sources of misleading information. So another reason that we need to study this is so that we will not be deceived. Paul said, I don't want you to be ignorant because ignorance leads to wild speculations and false expectations. And then to give you one more reason that we study is because this is the word of God that will make you different from the world. It makes you different from them. That is the them in verse number three. It makes you different from them, the ones who will experience God's wrath. So how should you live because you have this information? How are you different from them? How are you different because you don't live in the darkness and the ignorance of not knowing this? How are you to live so that you won't be ashamed at the coming of the Lord? And we find that in the scriptures, the second coming of Christ is almost always used as an exhortation to godliness. In chapter 3, verse 13, it says there, this will make you blameless and holy. In chapter 4, verse number 2, it's to cause you to live honestly. The apostle Peter wrote, and he said that knowing this information, understanding it, What manner of people should you be? How should you live your life? What conversation and godliness should you have in your life because you know about this? And it just goes on and on. Almost every time that you find a reference to the coming of Christ in the scriptures, very near to it, there's going to be a demand for godliness. So we're going to study this. We'll take our time. There's much to discuss. Even though Paul said in this passage, I don't have very much to say about it. I'll not sensationalize it. This is Bible exposition. It's not cartoon time. It's not fantasy left behind fairy tale time. This is the word of God. Now, in the context of this letter, Paul said, I don't have much to say 
And that's because he had already taught these things in detail when he first met them in Thessalonica. He didn't say very much in this letter, and so we're going to back up and we're going to discuss what they would have learned from him and why did he say, I don't need to write to you anymore or very much in this passage. So the day of the Lord, what did Paul mean by the day of the Lord? Well, let's explore this great and terrible day. The first thing that I'd want you to notice about it is the certainty of the day, that the day of God's wrath is certain. This is not a topic that is obscure in Scripture, as if we can't be sure of it. In fact, we can go to the first book of the Bible before we're even just three chapters in, and there in the third chapter we find in the earliest of human history there's a reference to the coming of the Lord. Now, you know that because we always discuss it at Christmas, that Christ became incarnate to ensure that there would be a day of judgment on the earth. That Christ, the Word of God says, will come and crush the head of that old serpent who is called the devil. And you may say, well, when did that happen or when will that happen? Well, we know that the cross has specific implications for the defeat of Satan and defeat of sin and of death. The cross assured that Satan would be defeated. But the cross and the resurrection of Christ are not the final blow on Satan. That crushing final blow... The destruction of Satan doesn't come until the day of the Lord. And you recognize this. You you recognize that Satan wasn't fully defeated at the cross, not at that time, because you live in a world where Satan has control. And you live in a world where Satan blinds people to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And you live in a world where you see the results of Satan's influence on people around you. You see that every day. You live in a world where you don't get a minute's rest from the devil's activity. And so the word of God says that you are waiting, the redeemed of God are waiting, and all of creation itself is waiting for Satan's final defeat. And so there at the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, God promised that would happen when he said that he would crush that serpent's head. Now throughout the Old Testament, the day of the Lord is prophesied again and again. I'll just read a few of the passages. There isn't enough time in a month of Sundays to read them all. And so we're just going to take a few of these, and this will give you an indication of the reaction to that great and terrible day. The first one I would read is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 13. And there it says, How ye, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as a destruction from the Almighty. Therefore shall all hands be faint, and every man's heart shall melt. And they shall be afraid. Pangs and sorrows shall take hold of them. They shall be in pain as a woman that travaileth. They shall be amazed one at another. Their faces shall be as flames. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, cruel, both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate. And he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. That's what Paul taught the Thessalonians. You can see the similarity of his language in 1 Thessalonians 5 as he compared the day of the Lord to a woman that is in travail. That's what Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 13. The day of the Lord is like a woman in travail. It's straight out of the Old Testament. And that travail, it means a woman who has labor pains ready to deliver a child. You're familiar with these uh, prophecies of Isaiah because of our long time reading in the book of Isaiah on Sunday mornings. And many of the passages that we've read are about the destruction of Israel's enemies. 
We've read about Assyria. We've read about Babylon and about Egypt. God promised destruction would come on them. But we've also noted many times as we've read these passages that they have both a near and a far fulfillment. The near fulfillment speaks of that time in Isaiah's day or around that time when Israel was in captivity and God brought his judgment on those nations. But then there is that far fulfillment, the far off time where he talks about the finality of God's judgment, the finality of God's vengeance on the entire world where he settles all accounts and where it says that he will sever the wicked from the just. In Ezekiel chapter 30, son of man... Prophesy and say, Thus saith the Lord God, How ye, woe worth the day! For the day is near, even the day of the Lord is near, a cloudy day. It shall be the time of the heathen. In Joel chapter 1 verse 15, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand, and as a destruction from the Almighty shall it come. In the second chapter, Blow ye the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand. A day of darkness and of gloominess, a day of doubts and of thick darkness, as the morning spread upon the mountains, a great people and a strong. There hath not been ever the like, neither shall be any more after it, even to the years of many generations. And then there's a parallel written by the prophet Amos in chapter 5. Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. To what end is it for you? The day of the Lord is darkness and not light, as if a man did flee from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand on the wall and a serpent bit him. Shall not the day of the Lord be darkness and not light, even very dark and no brightness in it? Now that's remarkable. There's some who wish for the day. They wish that Christ would come. They wish for it because they think it will be good for them. But they don't have any true knowledge of Christ. They wish for him, but they don't know him. And so I think of the many preachers that hold these prophecy seminars, that they get people interested in that, they get people interested in end-time events, and more interested in what happens in the end times than they are about the salvation of souls today. And the Word of God says, what good is that? Because what end is that for those who don't know Christ? He said it's a day of darkness. It's a day of judgment. You can't escape. It's like a man who thinks that he's safe because he outran a bear. Flees into his house. He's panting and breathing hard, thinking how fortunate that he is to escape. And then he leans his hand against a wall and there's a poisonous viper that bites him and he dies. The point is, there is no escape. If you are an unbeliever, there is no escape. Malachi 4, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And there in the very last book of the Old Testament, we see it speaks of the day of the Lord. After that, there comes 400 years of silence where God never spoke to anyone, where there are no prophets, where God never gave any information to anybody for 400 years, and then the Old Testament ends, or that Old Testament ended, that 400 years ends, and then opens up into the New Testament, where immediately we come right back to the same theme. And so Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost had this theme, 
Quoting from Joel chapter 2, Peter preached, And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And then, of course, the Apostle Paul spoke of it. Jude wrote about it. John in the Revelation spoke of it. From chapter 4 in Revelation, uh, the subject turns towards the day of the Lord and the judgments that fall on the earth. Typical passages are Revelation 6 verse 17 and chapter 16 and verse 14. In 6.17 it says, For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? In the 16th chapter, For they are spirits of devils working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And so if the Bible is true, so is the certainty of this day. Now it's not one day. That is not a single day and then it's over. Oh, people would surely wish that it would conclude in one day. But when the Bible speaks of the day of the Lord, it's not speaking of one day, it's speaking of a long period of time. It, it lasts for 1,007 years until we read in Revelation 20 that it ends with the law standing before the great white throne judgment to receive the punishment, the sentence of everlasting punishment in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. Then time is over. Then eternity begins. And the Bible teaches that the lost are lost forever. That God's judgments are sure and final. It's a frightening time. And we've read only just a beginning of the Bible's descriptions of that time. Buried within these passages are the details and the urgency for the reason that the Bible says today is the day of salvation. The Bible warns us that we do not want to be without knowledge and belief in Jesus Christ when the day of the Lord begins. Now that takes us into the text of 1 Thessalonians 5. Paul discussed the rapture and the deliverance of saints in chapter 4. But now the subject changes, or at least he takes up a different part of the subject. So next we see, number two, is the uncertainty of the day. But of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. It's a day that is certain to happen, but it's still a day that has some uncertainty about it. The first verse begins, but of... Now, translating that from the original Greek, it would say, now on the topic of. In other words, he turns to a different subject. It's a connected subject, but it's different from what he wrote in chapter 4. Now, in chapter 4, there he gives hope to believers. There he gives hope, a time for saints to enjoy, to look forward to the coming of Jesus Christ, the rapture that will occur. But in chapter 5, things change, and now he begins here just mentioning a day of calamity. It answers a question about when the rapture will occur. Will the church experience any of the judgments of the day of the Lord? No, because we see the subject changes. The rapture is over, the calamity begins. 
And so that tells us that the church will not be raptured in the middle of the tribulation. Certainly it won't be raptured at the end. The rapture must have taken place. It must uh, already occur because Paul separates it in this text. Topic number one is the rapture. That's in chapter four. But of, uh, on the topic of, topic two is the day of the Lord. Now he says we're talking about the day of the Lord. And these are not things that mesh together. So the rapture precedes the calamities of that day. Paul wants us to have assurance that we will be delivered from the wrath to come. Trust Christ, he says, and you'll not see the, an hour of that day. You'll not see that day. Now, it's not to confuse you. The rapture is a broader part of the subject of, uh, a part of the broader subject of eschatology. It's a part of the doctrine of end times. It's the event that kicks off the end times, so to speak. And so when the rapture occurs, the world should know from the many prophecies of Scripture that if they're still here, then they have just been plunged into the worst despair of God's judgment. Now notice again Paul's topic. He says the times and the seasons. He says, I don't need to comment on times and seasons. He said, you know these perfectly well. Well, let's take a look at that statement. It's a little bit confusing to us. There are two shades of meaning in his words. The first is that he didn't need to tell them more because he'd already taught extensively on this subject. How could he not teach this? He he had only the Old Testament to read and to teach, and this is such a big part of Old Testament scripture that he could hardly discuss the Old Testament, hardly discuss the scriptures at all without taking them to this subject. And so we would expect... Scriptures concerning Christ would be explained just as Jesus did to those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. You remember the story after Christ arose from the dead that he met two disciples that were walking to Emmaus and there it says that he explained to them all the scriptures concerning himself beginning at Moses and the commandments and took them through the Old Testament. Do you not think that Paul would have done the very same thing? To explain Jesus Christ, to preach Christ, he must take people through the scriptures. And so this is what he would do. He would take them through these Old Testament prophecies. He would show them that the Old Testament taught Christ and it taught about his death. And then he would tell them that Christ came and then he would just pick apart Old Testament scriptures. And accordingly then, he would have very much to say about the day of the Lord. No doubt Paul spent much time with it. Otherwise, he would have left out a major theme of the Old Testament. And then you think about this, that you can't deal with people on the subject of salvation unless you tell them what they're being saved from. So do you think that Paul wouldn't read to them Isaiah? And do you think that he wouldn't read to them Daniel? Do you think that he wouldn't go to the prophecies of Joel? What are they being saved from? Well, the thing that they're being saved from is the awful, terrible judgment of God against sinners. To save the lost, he must tell them what they're saved from. And friends, what you are saved from is you are saved from God. You are saved from the judgment that falls on the earth, which no person will escape. Now, he didn't need to say more to Christians in this place because they already taught on this subject extensively when he first brought them to faith in Christ. Now we notice though that he turned to this subject where he says little from the other subject where he said much. 
In chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, he explained the rapture in some detail. Now you see, he had no more to say about, about it because the Old Testament never explains the rapture. Or he had to say more about that because the Old Testament doesn't explain the rapture. The Old Testament doesn't separate the rapture and the wrath of God in judgment. And so in over 100 passages about the day of the Lord, the rapture's not mentioned. And so it would be very, very strange to think that the rapture would be a part of the day of the Lord, that it would be buried down into the middle or the end of the tribulation as a part of the day of the Lord and yet not be mentioned at all in 100 passages. So what we learn is that the rapture is a New Testament revelation. The Thessalonians were confused about the rapture because they hadn't heard enough about it. They didn't know the difference between it and the day of the Lord. And so what they did, they just ran things together and they thought that the persecution they were in was an indication that the day of the Lord had begun. Now just to show you, look in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and in verse number 1. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse, uh, chapter 2 and verse number 1. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition. Uh, you see, they are confused. They conflated the rapture with the day of the Lord. But Paul separated these two. And this is the reason that he taught the return of Christ, the rapture in chapter 4. And then he said, I don't need to say much about the day of the Lord. One they had heard about, the other they didn't really understand. Now the second meaning that's attached to his words would be this. I don't have to say much about times and seasons because nobody knows when that day will happen. The day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. And thieves don't make appointments. A few months ago, our new washing machine quit working. So I called a repairman to set up an appointment. He said, I will be there next Thursday at 9 a.m. And on Thursday, true to his word, he was there. The doorbell rang. I knew it was him. Thieves don't do that. If you know a thief is coming, you stand behind the door with a baseball bat and you clock him. And he knows that. He knows you will. So he's not going to call you and say, I'm coming. He won't make an appointment. He won't ring your doorbell. Now, Paul says, uh, how could I write and tell you how to expect a surprise? It is a surprise. I don't know. Nobody knows. So how can I write about it? The times, he says. The times refers to a date, a chronology, the pinpointing of the exact day. He says you can't do it. The seasons, those are the characteristics of the times. It's the events that take place during the time. Now we're going to talk about season and events as we go on through the study. But the seasons are the judgments of God. They're the attitudes, the mindset, they're the deeds of men during those times. And to all of that, Paul said, I, I don't need to write about it because I don't know when. It's surprising. It comes as a thief in the night. I can warn you that it will happen, but I can't tell you when it's going to happen. Now, the certainty of the day of the Lord is found in Old Testament Scripture, all those many passages. The uncertainty is the same as what Jesus said in Matthew 24. 
He said, Watch therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. But know this, that if the goodman of the house had known in what thought watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. How do we expect that Paul would know when this would happen when Jesus didn't? Jesus said, But of that day and hour knoweth no man, know not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Now clearly, Jesus would have ended all speculations about dates and times if that was necessary. The disciples always thought it was necessary. They always wanted to know because they said, said this is necessary for to have this information. Jesus said, no, it's not necessary for you to know. In Acts chapter 1, when they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. It must not be necessary to know. It's the same language. It's not for you to know the times or the seasons. I'm always careful about this. I can't count the number of times that people have said to me, Pastor, with all the bad things that are happening in the world, do you believe this is an indication that we are living in the end times? We used to have a fellow that constantly told me Christ's coming would happen immediately because he had assessed the times and the seasons. Well, according to the scriptures, world events are not a way that you could know that Christ is coming. They don't tell you anything that will help you to predict. Well, the indicators that Paul and Jesus spoke of uh, are things that, that, that are not here until Christ has already come. These are indicators after Christ has come, after the Antichrist has appeared. But despite what Jesus said, you can't know the times or the seasons. You don't need to know the times and the seasons. There are prognosticators who have formulas for deciphering Old Testament text. Like a Da Vinci Code, they figured out the time. And then when they miss the time, they just adjust the formulas and they predict again. Now, if you think about this for a minute, if we assess times and seasons in relation to the church, then what do you think people thought in the Dark Ages? What about a time when the false church of Roman Catholicism was in its heyday persecuting and killing the true church of Christ? Those were very bleak days. Those were the worst days that people had seen. They must have thought, this is the time. These are the seasons. What about World War I? World War I was supposed to be the war that ended all wars. That was a global conflict. You know, the Bible talks about global conflict in the end times. World War I was a global conflict, and people thought, surely this must be the time of Christ's return. Well, finally, that war was over. The League of Nations was formed, and it was supposed to resolve all disputes between nations, and there would be no more war. In 21 years, the pipe dream was over, and the United States joined in a war that was called what? The Second World War. The date setters always say, this is the time. In 1998, uh, 1988, and 1996, in 2011, in the 17th century, the 18th century, the 19th, the 20th, there's no end of speculation. Now, presently, here in the 21st century, some say that Trump's decision 
to move the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem is a sign that the Lord is at hand. Now, I know that Trump, by his own tweets, is the greatest president of all time, but despite the obvious self-proclaimed significance of history and the history of the world that surpasses all things such as the Protestant Reformation and the invention of the printing press, um, he is so great, but there's no allusion to the United States in Scripture. We'll not decide when the Lord comes. You're not... Don't count on Congress. Don't count on the Supreme Court. Don't count on the President of the United States or any others to indicate the return of Christ. Now, I I tell people, could it be tomorrow? They say, could it be tomorrow? Could it be another thousand years? I say, I don't know. So you just do what this text says. Live to be ready for it. Expect it. And it will make you holy. Don't look for a sign. Look for Christ. That's who we're to look for. Well, we're close on time, and I'd love to preach on about this subject. I have much, much more to say about it. Uh, In the first drafts of the sermon, I had a lot more to say about it, but lest I take on something I don't have time to complete, we're going to hit the pause button on this sermon, and we'll pick up more in the next message. But here's what I want you to take away from this introduction to the day of the Lord. It is certain to happen. Now, if that isn't true then you can take the Bible and you can cut away all references to it. And what you would have left is just a few pages that are flopping around in a nearly empty binder. Both salvation of the sinner and hope for saints would be gone if this isn't true. Without this, you live with nothing but vain philosophy. There's no rhyme or reason to this world without the day of the Lord. There is no hell for the lost and there is no heaven for the just. And there are some who would say, well, that would be very good. That would be just fine. But that would only be as good as dying to return to dust. And that would be it. That your best life would be now. And if you aren't rich, and if you aren't well, and if you aren't happy, and if you aren't peachy pure, and if your every day doesn't come up roses, then you have no hope that it ever will. God is not God. That's the consequence if one word of this Bible fails to be true. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but his word will not pass away. Did you know that even that was an eschatological statement? Heaven and earth will pass away. The day of the Lord is coming. Heaven and earth will pass away. And many times in the word, it says it will wax old. This earth will wax old and be folded up as a garment. Now, Jesus must be judged as a totally honest truth-teller or a horribly deceitful liar. He can't be both. How many times does the word say, today is the day of salvation? How many times have we said that? Why do we say it? Because you can't know, you don't know the times or the seasons. Christ is coming. The judgment is coming. And you're not ready unless you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I ask you to examine your own heart today. Do you know Jesus? Are you a believer in him? That day of reckoning is coming. And you must know him to escape the day of God's wrath. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now thanking you for your word and for the warnings that were given. We have no excuse to say that we didn't know. When you come, there will be people who will look back and say, I heard about that. I was told about that, but I did nothing about it. And Lord, those are people that will see the day of your wrath. We ask you, Lord, to speak to hearts today. Encourage 
Encourage people. Uh, use your Holy Spirit to draw them to salvation in Jesus Christ. We pray for Christians today that we would do exactly as Paul intends for us to do by reading these texts, that we would live in righteousness and holiness, that we would live in expectancy and show the world who Jesus Christ is because of that awful day that is coming. Help us today, Lord. Help us to have our faith in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When I preach sermons, I hope not to come to the end of the sermon and leave more questions unanswered than I do answered. But such is this subject that it's so broad, that it's so extensive, so big, that we just touched a small corner of the day of the Lord. So I'm sure it leaves you with many, many questions. So that's what the next weeks are, are for, to try to to hash those all out and figure it all out and see what the Bible has to say, what will happen when Jesus returns to this earth. So we're looking forward to that. I hope you are too. Uh, We'll resume uh, the message in a couple of weeks since I'll be away at Shepherd's Conference. So we'll look forward to that time. But should you have any questions that, um, that you have now that just you can't leave unanswered, then we're happy to talk with you about it. Most of all, as I said in the sermon, we are more concerned about the salvation of your soul today than we are about how much you know about the end times tomorrow. Uh, The end times tomorrow won't make any difference to you if you don't know about Jesus today. Well, it won't make any difference as far as your salvation is concerned, I'll put it that way. So that's the primary thing. This is the thing that we must always get out of the way first. Do we know the Lord? Then we're ready to look at the Bible and study it and see the wonderful promises and all things that we find in the Word of God that are for our good and God's glory. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church. 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.